good afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There's no, no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. If you're attending in person, you will receive your SurveyMonkey link after um, the activity is over. If you're viewing um, virtually live, we will add the link into the chat. And if you're watching this after the um, program is over, you can access the link in the description section of the video. Um, today, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Sapria Manapali. She earned her medical degree from the Manipal University Katspera Medical College in Mangalore, India. She completed her residency in internal medicine at the University of Tennessee College of Medicine at Chattanooga and a fellowship in infectious disease at the University of Florida College of Medicine in Jacksonville. She is board certified in infectious disease. Her areas of special interest include general infectious diseases, HIV management, general um, HIV management, hospital epidemiology, and antibiotic steward. Uh, Dr. Manapali has been named a fellow by the Infectious Diseases Society of America, the nation's leading infectious diseases professional society. Join me in welcoming Dr. Manapali. Thank you for the brave souls who showed up to hear about infection control today. Um, and this is going to be like an annual update. I hope to continue every year. We used to try to do this pre-COVID, kind of got away from that. So I really want to bring this back where um, we share data from our infection control um, um, reporting um, device-related infections, all the other things that we, that we are required to report. And this is on behalf of our infection control department, our work groups that work on preventing CARTIs, CLAPSIs, surgical site infections. There's some employee health um, data as well. I have no disclosures. Um, and why do we need to talk about this? Because when patients come to seek care, None of us want to cause any harm, but there are things that we do to them that can result in harm. And it's not uncommon, and the data is really impressive. One in 31 patients in a hospital can have a hospital-acquired infection at any given time, and the cost, direct healthcare costs could run into billions annually just here in U.S. And um, if you look at the indirect cost where it's either a cost to the society, loss of productivity, that could be even much higher, up to a total of 45 billion between the two annually. And each of these, um, I'm focusing mainly on infection prevention related um, topics today, but there's several other aspects as well when a patient is seeking care here that could result uh, in harm to them. So when it comes to CARTIs, if you see here, it, the range of uh, the cost of that increased cost could be anywhere from 4,600 to 29,000, could be much higher if you take into account a lot of other things that can happen to this patient in terms of not just treating that infection, but also increased healthcare, um, hospital stay, 
Some of these patients end up with having bacteremia, not just the CARTI. And when it comes to central line bloodstream infections, if these MRSA in the blood, and if they have a prosthesis that could result in additional procedures, uh, recurrence of infection. So the cost can be really, really staggering. And for central line bloodstream infections, the cost can be even up to 100,000 or even more. And um, when it comes to surgical site infections, you see here a range of 11 to 42,000. But again, if the patient needs additional procedures, they have a prosthesis that is infected, then the cost could be exponentially high. And what are the risk factors for someone to develop an infection? More severe the illness for which the patient is admitted, the higher the risk, uh, because they will end up with getting more invasive procedures, more lines and drains and catheters, and um, any lack of adherence to best practices for prevention, uh, because when it comes to um, preventing hospital-acquired infections, we're all familiar with best practice bundles for each one of them. And they're not totally um, driven by providers. It's a multidisciplinary approach between patient care techs, nursing, providers, and everyone, respiratory therapists, when we talk about ventilator-associated pneumonia, PTOT, um, all of us play a role in preventing these infections. And of course, inappropriate use of antimicrobials can lead to C. diff and drug-resistant organisms as well. And all the data that infection control collects, and one thing I wanna make it clear when it comes to infection control department, we're not really out there to get anyone or to find infections. When we do surveillance, we really don't want to find any infections. Our infection control department goes through enormous amount of data and they have definitions that come from CDC that it's like a checklist they have to go through to define if the patient met the criteria to call it or to identify an infection that needs to be reported or not. But our intent when we do this surveillance, when we spend hours doing that, is not to find these infections. We want those numbers to be zero. And CDC, the National Healthcare Safety Network, NHSN as we call it, is where we submit or we are actually required to submit this data. And this is the same data that flows into CMS and LeapFrog, other rating agencies. And this is the data that is used to compare our hospital to other hospitals. And they also have a way to compare like size, like type of hospitals, teaching, non-teaching, depending on the bed size, um, tertiary trauma center versus not. So all of this data is again compiled to compare us to others where we are, benchmark, see whether we're doing better, doing worse. And also again, tied to um, the mandates and again, um, this is, if this is all public data for anyone. If I'm choosing a hospital and I want to go and look at what's the hospital rating where I'm going to seek care, this is the same data that flows into uh, the rating agencies that give us the hospital grades. So, so if you look at Northeast Georgia Medical Center, again, if you see here looking at MRSA lab ID, we are in red. And this is for MRSA in the blood that we gave to the patients, CDF red. This is C. diff, not the patients came in with what we gave to the patients. And infections in the blood, that's the clapsies, were in green, but infections in the urinary tract were in red. And surgical site infections after colon surgery, we are there in yellow. So there's all of this 
again, different format of presenting the data, no matter how we um, look at this. So we have a lot of room for improvement. Not only that, you actually can also compare hospitals. You can choose the geographic radius and you can put different hospitals and then they'll give us information. If I'm seeking care for getting a prosthetic knee, then I can look at the data and decide where it is the best place for me to take my family member or myself. So all of this is public information out there for anyone to search and find how we are performing as a hospital. And these are reportable to NHSN. CARTI, scatter associated UTIs, central line associated bloodstream infections, lab IDC diff, that's hospital acquired, if they've been here three or more days, lab ID MRSA in the blood, ventilator associated pneumonia, surgical site infections, colon and hysterectomies are the only ones we're reporting at this point, but our infection control department monitors many other surgeries beyond just this. Also vaccination rates, influenza and COVID-19. And I do uh, want to make sure um, all of you guys probably are already aware that here at our health system, it is a requirement um, that we all get vaccinated or wear a mask in the influenza season. And COVID-19, we all are aware there's a new vaccine out there now to cover the new variants and highly encouraged to get that. And this is data again we have to submit. And I'll try to, it's... I won't be covering all of that we are reporting, but I'll try to cover some of the focus areas. Um, the catheter associated UTIs has been a huge focus for us in the last couple of years, continues to be so. And when you look at patients any day, we started doing what we call as line hurdles. So if anyone is rotating through ID or if you're in inpatient service, you want to come down to the greater good room that's near the medical staff services, Around 9.20ish, we do what we call as a line huddle. So all the patients' units in Gainesville, we look at all the lines and catheters, and nursing leaders bring that information there, and we go through the indications, why it's there, can it come out, and every day, Monday to Friday, that is done. And when we look at that, and we're kind of are not better or worse than other hospitals, we see 12 to 16% of our patients have an indwelling urinary catheter at some point during that mission. And of course, as we know, most of the UTIs that occur in hospitalized patients are because of an indwelling catheter. And the longer the catheter stays, the higher the risk of infection. And each day, the risk of having a bacteria in the urine goes uh, from three to 7%, the risk increases. And some have said it's even as high as 10%. And you may have heard this from me before. This is CDC definition. This is not clinical definition. So if patient has a catheter for two days or more, and it's two calendar days, not hours, and patient has at least one of the symptoms listed here, which is fever, suprapubic tenderness, severe pain or tenderness, urinary urgency, frequency, dysuria, and it doesn't have to be documented in a provider's notes. It could be um, a nursing note that's documented this, but the physician did not even mention it in their notes, but a urine was obtained, patient has had a Foley, and the urine grew bacteria more than 10 power five colonies of a common pathogen that causes UTI that is reportable to CDC as a CARTI. Doesn't matter whether you treat that or not, doesn't matter if fever resolves, and fever is one of the most common reasons why we do pan cultures and then we label them as having a CARTI, give unnecessary antibiotics. 
no urinary catheter, no CARTI, of course. And if you look at how we have done as a hospital over the last few years, 39 in 2019, we thought we were really bad. And we peaked at 70 catheter-assisted UTIs in 2021. We are trending down, but we still have a lot of room for improvement. And I don't know if anyone wants to guess how many of the 44 we had in the last year that ended at, in September 30 were in Gainesville. Anyone knows? 40 of them were in Gainesville, four across all the other facilities. So this is where we have to focus. And I just want to spend one minute on this slide. I mean, Brazelton, we can say a smaller hospital, but even if you compare it to the beds compared to Gainesville, Gainesville is 557, Brazelton around 130, 140. Still comparatively, Brazelton is performing better than Gainesville in terms of the number of infections that have been identified. We also look at fully utilization data compared to patient days on any unit or floor. So we have actually reduced our fully utilization over years. So we're green for the last several months in terms of that, but our CARTIs are still high. That's because we are still, we still have a lot of room to improve when it comes to not sending that urine culture when it's not indicated. And when we look at the cases, at least three or four of the CARTIs or even more than I reviewed them, the Foley comes out, the next day patient tells this someone they have some discomfort, which is not uncommon if they've had a Foley catheter, there may be some local inflammation. And you talk to urology and that's what they say as well, that it's not uncommon, you don't need to rush and send the urine for culture if they are otherwise stable. That resolves within a day or two, just hydrate them, treat their symptoms. But dysuria within 24 hours or within a day of removing the Foley, that's why the urine was sent. And there is a window where even after the Foley comes out for the next, uh, depending on again what we, are, we have identified, there is a certain window where it may still be a CARTI if we get the urine culture. It's not just when the Foley is there. And there are patients who have other causes for the fever like sinus hemorrhage, pulmonary contusion. We don't need to go searching for other causes, but we are doing pan cultures on them and then we, the urine grows something and that's a CARTI because they've had a fever even if it's fever is from CNS hemorrhage. And our patients who have had pan cultures because they've had a cloudy urine, there was a patient who had a peg dislodgement, discomfort, and pan cultures were obtained, urine was positive. These are not even real infections in most of these patients. So it's not just that our numbers look bad, what we are reporting. It's also all each and every one of these patients got an antibiotic course. We implemented several things over time to, um, this has been a multidisciplinary effort to reduce CARTIs. Uh, one is an alert. Um, I recently learned a few months ago that our BPA response rate is 4%. I don't know how much really this BPA is helping, but definitely this was added to our uh, um, efforts to at least put it in front of the providers that your patient has a Foley, does he need it? Can it come out? Um, alternatives to Foley are available both for men and women. We're continuing to look at alternative products. And um, when patients come to ED, they have chronic Foley at home, we recommend that that's changed in the ED when they're present. 
And removing catheters are a place for procedures within 24 hours. Um, even earlier, sometimes don't even place it if it's not needed. There's several places, even including mother baby, where they do in and out catheterizations to placing a Foley when they give epidural. So trying to avoid the Foley in the first place. And patients who do straight cath at home, they want a vacation from that Foley. When they come here, they want a Foley hall, they ask for the Foley catheters. And instead of trying to have that conversation that that's going to put them at increased risk, um, we put foleys in patients who do straight cats at home. So that's something we should get out of that habit of doing. And even if they need strict INOs, we don't need to put a foley catheter. Pad weight measurement process is accurate. And if there is a floor you're working on that doesn't know how to do that, please make sure you escalate that to the nursing leader there so they can help with that. And any patient that has a Foley needs to have a provider order. A Foley cannot be there, even in patients with chronic Foley that are admitted, if they're going to come in as an inpatient, they need a Foley order. Something else we are looking at, getting rid of Foley's on the floors completely and putting the, having them stored in the central supply. So making it difficult to get it and out of sight, out of mind, and making sure that maybe we have only some available through a certain strict process for any emergencies, but otherwise getting rid of Foley's in all the units and floors, including ED. We're looking into this process as well. And why is that? I think we all know that when there is any sort of foreign body, bugs like to stick to that. When they stick together, they kind of form a colony and they're stronger together and they secrete a matrix around them that kind of lets them survive there longer. And when that happens, they're just resistant to being swept away easily, resistant to phagocytosis, resistant to antibiotic agents. So when there is a Foley catheter, this starts happening within hours. It doesn't take longer for the bacteria to get into that Foley because the perineum is very bacteria-rich environment. And once the bugs go in there, within hours, they've already formed this biofilm, kind of there's a survival advantage for them. And there's studies that have shown that almost 90 to 100% of patients that have a Foley in those studies after a few days were identified to have positive urine culture, not because they have an infection, but because they have a Foley and a biofilm there. So basically chronic urinary catheterization is synonymous with bacteriuria, but bacteriuria in a patient with chronic Foley does not mean infection. And when it comes to our normal bladder Lining, it has defense mechanisms to prevent infections. Foley's don't, they're just foreign bodies. So once the bacteria make their way into the Foley, of course there is e they have a higher risk of having an infection, but if just presence of bacteria in the urine should not prompt us to give them antibiotics unless they're pregnant or they're going for a GU procedure. Also, we should not be getting urine cultures from a dirty Foley catheter that's been in there for three days or longer. We should change it out. Patient is stable, even wait a day or two. Sometimes any local inflammation, infection, just getting rid of that foreign body takes care of that without us intervening and doing anything more. We talked about this and sorry did I go okay yes many of you may have seen this this has been shared very widely recently we implemented a process where any urine culture in a patient with Foley catheter 
needs multiple reviews and sign-offs before the lab will run it. And we got input from several provider groups, um, went to the medical executive committee, nursing council, and uh, worked on this algorithm where if a patient um, is showing signs of when do we get urine cultures? That's our focus. How can we reduce unnecessary urine cultures? And this has gone through multiple revisions, continues to do so. But um, this is the latest one that was uh, recently presented again at MEC. Because when we came up with this process, we thought, okay, this is going to reduce a lot of the unnecessary urine cultures. And then when we went back and saw instead of fever, SIRS, with no clear source became the most common reason for getting urine cultures. Not because there was no clear source, there was no workup for any clear source. SIRS, there's fever, there's tachycardia, pan cultures are obtained. So it was not serving the purpose. So we went back to MEC to see what can we do to reduce those cultures in patients that don't really need it. And they actually gave us some other input where here we have clarified if there's fever, presence of two additional source criteria, altered mental status with two source criteria, or severe sepsis or septic shock with no clear source. Of course, more than one of the signs and symptoms of UTI. And we understand that patients who are neutropenic transplant, they do not usually present with the clear symptoms. So as part of the fever workup in those patients, it's reasonable to get um, urine cultures and we're excluding pediatrics and pregnancy, we treat any positive urine culture. So these are the criteria for obtaining a urine culture. And when we order a urine um, culture in a patient with a Foley catheter, nursing actually has this yellow form that they go through that's signed off by nursing leadership, nursing to ensure that they're adherent with the criteria that's been approved by the MEC. If there is any gap in this, I really would like, please let us know, because at the end of the day, when we are trying to improve quality and safety, we don't want to cause harm. So if there is a gap that you identify, this, al this algorithm is not covering, or have this set of patients that would not get a urine culture when they really need it because of what's in the algorithm, let us know so we can review that and then update the algorithm as needed through MEC approval. Since we implemented this, the two quarters prior to implementation of this, we had 15 to 16 CARTIs, and then after that, that has halved almost. Is that correct, or am I? Yeah, that has come down to eight. So we're seeing some improvement, so I hope that sustains, but we still have a lot of room for improvement. We also worked with lab to clarify the site um, from where the urine is being obtained. Because it, before it used to be just clean catch or catheter. Now you have to, it has, uh, it clearly, you have to specify which site so the lab knows again. And also this has an alert that if the foley is in there for three days or more to change the catheter. When we are doing the line huddle, one of the things we are noting is majority, it almost seems like other than the patients in the ICU, Everyone has a catheter for retention. And these are patients who are doing fine at home. They come to us and then they develop acute retention. And I was asked to review a few of these cases. And when I looked through, 
They were on multiple medications that can cause acute urinary retention. I don't know if that's part of the workflow that we currently do in inpatient medicine or not, because they get acute retention, they develop acute retention, we do straight cath twice based on nursing protocol, they fail, we put a Foley, we remove the Foley in two days, and then we re-challenge, they fail again, then we do two more straight cats, then we put the Foley again, but we're not really addressing why they develop that acute retention. It could be a medication or we are not ambulating them. Um, so we looked at several, we worked with urology, we got input from our um, different provider groups as well. And there's several things. Constipation is one of the most common causes for acute retention. Are we addressing that? Are we ambulating the patient? Are we making the patient sit on the commode every two hours, encouraging them to perform balsalva or just bend down and put pressure on the bladder? Dripping tap water, our long-term care does that. Peppermint oil and putting fingers in warm water in a bowl, increasing hydration, looking at the meds and see if there's anything we can discontinue or starting them on Flomax or in increasing the dose of that. So there's so many other things we need to do other than just placing the Foley as a reflex. So this has again been updated and hopefully it can be shared soon. But um, we don't want us to keep trying straight cats fully. So after one failed attempt, we want us to stop, but look at the medication list and see if we have opportunities there and try these other natural remedies. We also identified that through COVID, many of our nurses were learning how to place Foley by watching a video. In-person training, we had moved away from it. So we went back to doing competency checks and also two-person insertion, which is best practice that we have brought it back. And uh, pedicure each shift, each floor has a process. If you see those pedicure wipes on the doors now with the clip, so there is a reminder for them to do it. So we've implemented a lot of things here. Our members are not reflecting that improvement. So I hope maybe in the coming year, we see some improvement because from the time we insert or we are thinking about inserting a Foley to how we maintain it. When a patient is being transported, where is the Foley? Where is the bag? Is it on the patient's tummy? Is it really down the bladder? So all of these things. Are we doing pericare? Are we evaluating per shift if the Foley can come out? And so this is what I was talking about. It's so important. We have a dedicated transport team or infection control does um, do education to them as well. So I really hope with all of this multidisciplinary approach, we are able to turn around and see that our members are improving and reflect the efforts that have gone into this. Um, I do have to mention Jennifer London, who's been the COTI work group champion, who has done a lot of work actually with this and, and our infection control department that continues to work on improving these numbers. C. diff, next. Um, I think most of us in this room know, if you suspect C. diff, you put the patient in isolation. You don't wait for the result to come back. And it's the contact and also this blue sign because we need to use soap and water to get rid of the spores from our hands. And if a patient has a positive lab test for toxigenic seed, if it's producing toxin, then we need to report that to the CDC. The hospital day three or greater, that's hospital acquired, we own it. So if your patient comes in with diarrhea, try to get it before the three days. 
But even if they come in with diarrhea, but you delay and you get it on day four, that means we gave that to the patient. Nobody from CDC is going into the chart and seeing um, whether a patient came in with it. They just look at the date of admission. Our numbers that are reported to CDC are much higher than what I'm showing here, but this is what our infection control department has determined as truly hospital acquired. And this is 92, but if you look at the true numbers that are reported that we are graded on, it's in mid 120s, so very, very high. And this is distributed all across all facilities. Of course, Gainesville being the highest. And again, 42 in 2018, we thought, really, really bad, but now where we are, we have, we really have to improve. And each of these hospital acquired infections is tied with each other. So here we were talking about urine cultures. So this is a patient that comes in with CHF, acute and chronic CHF, gets a urine on admission. Why? We don't know. Been talking to ED providers. They have quick sets that has a UA with reflux culture in each and every one of them. It's almost like a ticket to ED visit whether they're admitted, everyone gets a urine for UA with reflux culture. No fever, no abdominal pain, but there is urine done. And if we were not instructing our patients how to obtain a good urine, it may be contaminated, may grow something. So this patient has positive ESBL in the urine. And then three days later, Foley is placed for accurate measurements of uh, INOs. Um, and again, they get a urine, no fever, no abdominal pain, and it's still positive. Now they decide, okay, we're going to treat because we have had two positive urines. Now, then they remove the Foley, then they again get another urine. This time, no fever, no abdominal pain, still growing ESPL E. coli, still continuing in advance. And after nine days, patient is positive for C. diff. So each of these um, infections that are hospital acquired, somewhere they kind of overlap uh, with each other. And we are changing to a two-step test from PCR because PCR detects positive CD, the gene that um, codes for the toxin. So if you look at studies, almost um, half of positive PCRs are not true C. diff acute infections, they're colonization. So we are over-diagnosing C. diff. That doesn't mean we can ignore the numbers. We still have a lot of room to improve in terms of antibiotic use, unnecessary cultures we obtain. But we are moving to a two-step test for C. diff where we test for a enzyme and toxin. And the enzyme just detects the presence of C. diff and the toxin tells us if it's toxin producing or not, which is indicative of acute infection, whether you need to treat versus not. Even if the patient is positive for GDH, which means C. diff is present, but not producing toxin, they can still spread. And that C. diff can produce toxin at some point. So we still want to isolate them, even if we are not treating them. So those patients will be placed in what we call as enteric contact isolation. And these patients, again, clean hands with soap and water, their rooms will be cleaned with bleach, UV will be used, uh, UV light will be used for terminal disinfection. So even if they are not producing the toxin, they will be continued on isolation, but will just change from C. diff active infection to enteric isolation. So be the same sign we'll use for norovirus, other diarrheal illness that we may or may not know what is causing it. We are trying to work with the lab to get in-house um, GI panel PCR, but hopefully that will give, a, give us um, 
an improved turnaround time in terms of, in terms of detecting some of these viral pathogens. And ONP as well, which ONP test in stool is useless. That's why we say ONP times three. Anytime you test, you say times three, that means it's a bad test and you're doing it multiple times, hoping you'll detect it one of the times. That's why when AFB times three, it's a bad test, we have to do it three times. So always order MTB-PCR, you're suspecting TB. So preventing C. diff, antibiotic stewardship is crucial, hand hygiene and environmental disinfection with bleach and UV and test only when clinically indicated. Even with moving to the two-step, we highly recommend that the patient comes in with diarrhea, get the test right away. Patient develops diarrhea, always look at the meds, look at what's going on with the patient to see if there is other explanation. And if they're on laxatives, stop that if they don't need it, or if they're on any other tube feeds, again, talk to dietitian to see if there is anything um, else they can do. But just don't make that let always only diagnostic stewardship is huge now in microbiology that we don't order tests that are not needed. And we have a good reason why we are ordering a certain test. So similar to the urine testing algorithm, the, the diarrhea decision tree. And um, we hope you guys use um, this and reduce unnecessary testing. CLAPS is central line associated bloodstream infections. There's no excuse even to have one of this. This can be really serious, high mortality, morbidity, and depending on the pathogen, again, increased risk of endocarditis, infection of other sites, other complications. And we peaked at 31 in 2021. We're at 16, if I'm not mistaken, since I put the slides together. Um, but again, pre-COVID, we were at 10, and we thought that was a lot. So. What changed in 20, other than pandemic? Anything else from 2019? Are we being looked at, are our numbers being looked at as an academic? That is, I have a question that with our infection control NHSN as well. One of the things that has changed also is we're an academic teaching center. So if anything, I would like to see these numbers much, much lower because I think of our residents being a teaching facility as us, actually practicing the most evidence-based medicine so if anything, if we were 10 in 2019, we have now come out of the pandemic, we're trying to get back to basics. So pretty soon in an year or two, being a teaching facility, I would like to see us getting back to single digits or even zero when it comes to collapse. Again, majority of them in Gainesville. And again, I hear all of this. So Gainesville has sicker patients. I don't deny that. At the same time, even if you adjust for the beds, Bear Brazelton also has very sick patients. So we have a lot of room for improvement here in Gainesville compared to other sites. And when I reviewed the cases, four of these patients had femoral lines. And we all know femoral site is the dirtiest site, high risk of infection. And um, when we look at the pathogens that have been isolated, enterococcus, again, a GI, GU bug. Eight of the patients had coagulative staph of some sort, which is a skin bacteria. Um, Candida species, E. coli, pseudomonas. So these are the pathogens that have been isolated. Hand hygiene, how are we inserting the catheters? Are we following the best practice in inserting, best sterile technique in inserting? Um, I don't do procedures anymore 
but when you are inserting, are you using the ultrasound to insert central lines? And if you're doing multiple attempts, are you using the same needle, or if you get the needle full completely out of the skin, are you asking for a new needle? There's so many factors that go into this to prevent infections. And how are we maintaining our lines? Are we looking at the lines daily, making sure dressings are changed weekly or when soiled? And scrubbing the hub anytime we access with alcohol. Each one of them, they're called bundles for a reason because every component in the bundle plays a role in preventing infection. Are we reviewing the line necessity daily and documenting it per shift? Are we using midlines and avoiding placing picks? And when we talk about central lines, it's not just our IJ subclavian femorals, also the pick lines, dialysis catheters, pores, all of those are counted under this. And if a patient is coming in with a port, are we accessing that when we don't need a central line? So there's, we really should not be accessing the port if patient does not need a central line. Are we using midlines if the need for access is less than four weeks? Is the patient getting daily CHG bath? Um, and is that being documented? Dressing change, is it being done? Is it being documented? And six of these patients had dialysis access. So a lot of opportunities, again, to reduce infections. We have recently um, sent out communication, working with the vascular team to promote midlines extensively. Uh, we actually are also meeting with our home health agencies, skill nursing this month, because I've heard that some home health agencies are not accepting patients on IV antibiotics if they have a midline, they're asking for a pick line. That is not truly, that does not make sense unless they're on a medication that cannot be given through a midline. And um, avoid placing central lines again when not clinically indicated. Reducing blood culture contamination. Now our lab has brought in these diversion devices that can be used to reduce blood culture contamination. And don't draw blood cultures from the lines, even if you're suspecting infection. That's how I was taught in training, but we don't do that anymore as you can draw blood clots from periphery, even if you're suspecting a bloodstream infection from a central line. Don't send catheter tips for culture. And as part of your assessment, look at the line to see how the site looks. Is there any pain, swelling, redness? And if so, intervene early. Don't wait until that turns into a bloodstream infection. And sometimes these patients who have central lines have multiple catheters. They may have a peripheral IV, they may have an art line, and they get labeled as having a central line bloodstream infection, but the source actually is a peripheral IV or an art line that we have not been maintaining well or we have not really been monitoring closely. So CDC, again, is working on changing the definition. Now we only report to CDC if patient has central line and bacteria or uh, bacteremia or candidemia in the blood, bloodstream infection. They are actually looking into including all lines. So very soon in the next year or two, a patient with any type of line, they're actually debating what definition they want to use. So they may, may include even peripheral IVs. If a patient develops bloodstream infection under our watch and they had a peripheral IV, we may have to start counting and reporting them. And can imagine the numbers would be exponentially high, I feel. So we're actually starting to proactively work on that as well now. So. This is the criteria for midline. I hope most of you are familiar with that. Um, criteria for pick lines, again, 
uh, where the need is more than four weeks or there are medications that are vesicans you can give through peripheral IVs, TPNs, hemodynamic monitoring. And anytime you're choosing a midline, a pick line, always go for single lumen if possible, if that is okay for that patient need. Because the more the lumens, more risk of infection. And portacath, again, do not access unless patient needs central venous access. And if it's non-emergent, always make sure whoever is managing that catheter or port, if it's the oncologist or the treating provider, make sure that's okay from them. At least when I first started practicing, if patient is on chemo, patient has a port, we would not access that without our oncologist signing off. I've seen that practice go away over years. We're trying to get back to that. Again, this is not possible in emergency, but if it's a non-emergent situation, at least don't touch those ports unless it's okay by the treating provider. When we started questioning, we had a couple of um, cases of where um, patients developed thrombophlebitis from peripheral IV, an art line where patient developed pseudoaneurysm, and we were looking at, okay, what's our process for monitoring these lines, not the central lines? Um, we had a gap. We didn't have a grading system in place. So we recently, um, thanks to work from Cheryl Biddle, our CLAPSI work group, nursing is going to start using this grading system for monitoring lines, peripheral IVs, art lines, central lines, zero to three is the grading. And depending on what they're identifying, they will be reaching out to you guys. And if the patient is having redness, it's as providers, we have to make the call. It's minimal, patient is not having tenderness. I want to watch, patient is R. Let's just get rid of that catheter and find one in an alternative site. So I want you guys to be aware that this is something nursing will be using and will be reaching out to you based on the scoring system here. And this is just from the IDSA guidelines. We covered most of the things in this. Um, so I'll skip this. And I don't know how many of you even know how to get this data that I'm presenting. It doesn't have to be through a CME event, you can go on demand. There is a SharePoint site that you can go to. Infection Control works very hard to put this together to update this. We'll try to send a link again. We have shared it a few times in medical staff newsletters. And depending on which unit you are working on, you can go and look at exactly how that unit is performing and also this rolling graphs of how they've done over the last few months. And this is, any of us can access with privileges here it's not restricted, but I really am requesting providers to be using this more. These report cards are extremely helpful to know how we are performing in any unit. Candidaurus, what else kept infection control busy over the last year? Um, Candidaurus is a candida that is resistant to common antifungals. Even though around 50 to 60% of them usually tend to be susceptible to mycophagin, most of them are resistant to fluconazole. And we were the first hospital in Georgia to have a Canada RS patient in summer of 2019. And we thought that was the biggest thing that happened before COVID started. And um, that patient, then in May here in Gainesville, we identified a patient that tested positive for Candida RS. And as we started looking, we identified more patients. Then when we started really doing this line diagram, you see here this patient who tested positive in Gainesville 
was a neighbor to the patient that was a known CRS patient from 2019 that had multiple admissions. And then the other patients that we were identifying were also had some connection in terms of being in the same floor, close proximity, um, sharing uh, healthcare personnel, and just see how it flows from one to other, one to other, which tells us that we have a lot of room to do better in terms of hand hygiene, environmental disinfection. So a lot of our efforts have been focused on that. And also things like stethoscopes, ultrasound machines that we use, are we cleaning them effectively? Or are these carrying these germs from one patient to other? There was just one patient that came from an outside long-term care facility. We could not really connect with anyone else, but otherwise every patient we could connect with another CRS patient we had. There was a whole response team working that worked on um, the CRS and we had to do point prevalence, work with public health, and we had to have two negative point prevalence in certain units before we could stop that. Again, this is something we do want to bring back at some point, some sort of a screening for Canada or CPCRE for high-risk patients. So we're not live with that yet, but patients that come from went, um, Chronic vent patients that come from skilled facilities that take care of these specific patients, those are the patients at the highest risk. And those with more lines, catheters, drains, those are the patients that are at very high risk. Public health also wanted us to include patients that have had international travel, and especially if they have been admitted and had procedures in any outside, um, any international location. So hopefully we can implement that soon, but that is something also we are looking into. Surgical site infections, colon, um, as Dr. Creel always says, colon, these are the dirtiest surgeries, but that's what um, CMS um, requires us to report. That's what NHSN wants us to report. And if you look here, again, we were at 35 last year. Um, we have to turn this around. A lot of them are superficial infections. When we think of superficial infections, things that come, hand hygiene, wound care, how are we taking care of that incision, closure, these are the things that, and are we giving the antibiotics correctly, timely? Um, cardiac, these are the patients um, that have had cabbage or valve surgeries. Uh, so again, we had 14, we, had, we peaked at 20 in 2021, and we had 14, that's still a lot. And a lot of these patients uh, also had unplanned surgeries and um, six of them had superficial um, infections. Spine, we've seen significant improvement um, and infectious diseases gets involved uh, when these patients get infected. And these infections are not easy to treat, especially if these patients had any hardware placed. They end up with long-term antibiotics, high risk of C. diff, thick clients, high risk of bloodstream infection, if the hardware is retained, they keep having flare-ups that we keep treating or chronic antibiotics leading to drug resistance. So what we see as just one number can be very devastating to the patient. And again, five of these were superficial. And these are hip and knee replacements. These are, again, this one, we should be zero. Because from the time we are talking to the patient about having a prosthetic knee or a hip, we should have a plan to see what we can do if they're diabetic, how to mitigate their risk, glucose control, weight management, um, 
and again, decolonization for staph aureus with CHG, mupirocin, pre-op antibiotics, post-op care, how the family members are going to help take care of them after they get home, hand hygiene, all of these factor into preventing these infections. And again, this and any of these infections, it's while we just see numbers, they can be very, very devastating to the patient. So we currently, the we, few years ago, we had a process where if an elective prosthetic joint surgery patient came in, did not undergo decolonization, the surgery would be stopped. They would not proceed. The chief of surgery would be called and the surgery would be postponed. We kind of had moved away from it. And recently we went back to doing, making that a mandatory. Either patients should be screened for staph aureus, decolonized if positive, or if you don't screen them, just go ahead and decolonize. If not, you cannot proceed with that elective surgery. And it's, again, it takes explaining to the patient. It may be, they may be upset, but if they know you're doing it to help them to reduce their risk, they would understand. And adding vancomycin to NSF if they're positive for MRSA pre-op. Not just giving vancomycin, because if you just give vancomycin, that's inferior for MSSA, which is one of the most common causes of host of infection. So you add vancomycin to NSF and also intranasal povidin iodine for any unplanned implant surgeries where we don't have the time to do the five days of decolonization. And glucose control is key. That's where our peri-op inpatient medicine providers come in to help with that. And from the skin prep, that's the alcohol combination with chlorhexidine or pre-op antibiotic. They used to be where the, the antibiotic is hung they're cutting, they're doing the incision. That's useless. We're checking a box, but it's not helping the patient. Antibiotic needs time to get into the tissues to make sure there's enough concentration to prevent infection. At least before 15 minutes, that antibiotic should have been infused. So within one hour, but 15 minutes prior, that's for NSF. And giving the correct dose and redosing for long procedures based on half-life. And the common thing when I review cases is, oh, patient is on Zosin or some other antibiotic on the floor. They came to surgery. They don't need pre-op antibiotics because they're on a scheduled antibiotic. And it really depends on when that antibiotic was given. What's the coverage for that antibiotic? So what we have educated or what we are promoting is ignore whatever antibiotic patient is on scheduled on the floor. Just give the pre-op antibiotic based on this table. This is what all our surgeons and anesthesia have. And this is an ongoing effort because every time we review cases, we see, oh, they're on scheduled antibiotics, so we didn't give them pre-op antibiotics, and then they end up with infection. Glucose control, oxygenation, maintaining normothermia, using triclosan sutures, and for elective colon surgeries, doing mechanical uh, ball prep and oral antibiotics uh, as listed here with neomycin metronidazole prior to patient coming here is also in, included in the recent recommendations to prevent infections. And changing gown and glove before fascia and skin closure, not clipping hair in the OR. Still we see when we review patients that develop infection, hair has been clipped in the OR and they have not used a separate closure tray and they have not had the evening and the morning CHG wife. When I say they have not had it, if they didn't document, that means as long as when we are reviewing, that means they didn't get it. And post-op, there is no data to continue antibiotics once the incision is closed. 
But seeing antibiotics within 24 hours is what we are still practicing here. And keeping that sterile dressing intact for 48 hours, all of these are very, very important as well. What we are doing now is actually, um, this is going to be data anyone can access. We're unblinding it. So you can go to the SSA report card and you can see this surgical site infection rate for surgeons based on the type of surgery. You can compare to their peers. This is all unblinded. All of us can see it. We're going to post it in the lounges and also the same thing in the SharePoint side. The link will be shared with them periodically. And we have support from surgical leaders. So hopefully very soon we'll be doing that. We're almost ready with all the links and everything. They can even access this from their phones. We're double checking that. And there's a lot of other things infection control does to educate, raise awareness. The one thing I wanted to mention is back to basics. Our IPs are here. Friend Nicole and Maria, you want to say anything about that? Hi, everybody. I'm April Exley with the Infection Prevention Department. Myself and Nicole, uh, we tag-teamed with one of our CNSs here, uh, Cheryl Biddle. We talked about some of the projects that we wanted to shine a light on that we needed nursing's um, input and action on. And when it came down to it, we thought we really everything had a common theme. We need to get back to basics. So we actually helped sat down and developed the Back to Basics program. So every day of the week has a focus, Mouth Care Monday, Tissue Tuesday, Wednesday is Wash Up Wednesday, et cetera. Um, every campus inpatient nursing unit talks about the theme for the day and the goal for the day. They're very small goals that can be easily attained by very simple actions. Um, one goal on Mouth Care Monday could be ask your patient when they want to brush their teeth that day. That's it. Nothing else. They don't actually have to do it but we want to just to have that communication. And we have found a huge increase in the need for personal care items to be housed in each of our units. We had an increase of that. So we've had good outcomes. We took it to an evidence-based symposium. That was a national symposium. Um, nursing got on board, leadership contracted to participate. And as you walk around your nursing units, you may see on their huddle boards the day of the week, flagged on the board. So we worked really hard on that, and I think we've seen some big increasing um, actions on nursing's part. Um, seems to be an easy participation on their part, too, which is really good to offer them something that they can do easily. But that was our back to basics. Fun. There was a lot of work that went into it because um, I think COVID was survival mode. We're trying to get back into, um, as I mentioned, when I saw collapses at 10, 2019, I thought with us being a teaching facility, this is what will get us to being zero. But then we've been in the pandemic for the last few years. So I'm really hoping you guys are now with the Back to Basics campaign, with being a teaching facility, we really do get to that zero number with collapses and reduce numbers with all other HAIs. That's all I have, unless any questions. I didn't cover PVAPs. Um, I'm hoping that for ventilator associated pneumonia, we'll have a different dedicated topic. So you mentioned uh, C. diff testing, PCR obviously doesn't distinguish between um, 
um, colonization. colonization and acute infection. Uh, we were looking the other day and trying to find um, the additional testing, like stool stool PCR testing or something along those lines. So what, what method will we use if we do suspect colonization versus acute infection, besides obviously symptomatology and suspicion, clinical suspicion? So the test that the lab is bringing is a quick test, that's a quick CDF. That is a combination of the enzyme and the toxin. They should be live. I don't know if we have a date yet. We've started communicating about this test made to make everyone familiar about it, but they're validating. The lab has to validate that first in the lab. So what they're doing is specimens are testing positive or negative for PCR. They're validating against this test to see how it's performing. And it's pretty much performing very well. So they should be live very soon. It was supposed to be September. So keeping fingers crossed some date in October, they'll be live with their test. So that will be the only test you can order. PCR will not be an option for you. So once the lab changes, we will completely get rid of PCR. Only test will be this, this CDF GDH toxin combination quick test. I have seen some already and um, it shows up two steps and one is like a number and it'll say negative or positive. And then one says toxigenic and that's when you have the active infection. So when for your, for treatment purposes, the thing you look for is the toxin, present, absent. I don't know if I can go back to, for treatment, you decide that based on toxin, detected or not, that's all. That's all you, the GDH is just presence of call, CDF, which is colonization. So that's all you focus on to decide. And very soon, interestingly, CDC is looking at changing what we report, not the test result, but whether you decide to treat or not. So if you decide to treat colonization, our numbers will look really bad. So that also, that change is coming very soon. Excellent. Thank you.